What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Dr. Jacket, would you introduce yourself mm-hmm. a little bit and tell us about your background in implementation science? And maybe since Kelly and I kind of said we learned about implementation science in our postdoc, tell us a little bit about how you learned about implementation science. Sure. So um, very, first of all, very flattered to be asked to be here. Um, I love talking about this topic, respect both of you and the work that you do. And it's been a, a great pleasure working on the scope and review that you'll be presenting next week. Um, but I am Lisa Juckett. I am an assistant professor at the Ohio State University in the Division of Occupational Therapy. I've been with Ohio State for, gosh, it'll be coming up on 14 years. Started at Ohio State working at inpatient rehab. Lots of work in, um, a lot of my clinical work was in stroke rehab, a little bit in geriatric rehab as well. Um, and you're right, Catherine is the Ohio State University. Emphasis on the B. Um, but any Ohio State alums would be irritated for not for me not emphasizing the, the V. Um, but uh, spent my clinical time in stroke rehab, in geriatric rehab, but then made the departure away from clinical practice after about six years, because um, I wanted to ask bigger questions. I wanted to try to make a bigger impact, um, not just in OT, but just in rehab and older adults, um, health and wellness in general. And that's when um, I pursued a PhD actually in social work. And a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, but a fair number of people over the course of the past several years have been like, I don't understand this. You know, you're an OT, but you want to do a PhD in, in social work. Um, and much of my, the research that I like doing is, is not in the uh, health and rehab space, really. It's more in the social services space. Um, so I think I was a little burnt out of the traditional medical model in clinical practice. And that's what led me to the PhD in social work, as well as um, my PhD advisor, is a WashU grad and that is where she was trained in implementation science. And so I was drawn to having her as an advisor. Um, I kind of stumbled across implementation science through the College of Social Work at Ohio State. Um, and so, and I'm glad I did though, because it really has changed the trajectory of my of my career. Um, I would like to think for the better because I get to do work that I really think is important and impactful and you know moves down the pipeline as opposed to just getting stuck um, you know, in that, in that funnel of research, we do it, we do the studies, but we don't actually then take those findings and, and use them to inform real world practice. So that's what I'm trying to do now with the help of some really talented uh, teammates. That's awesome. I didn't realize your PhD was in social work, actually. And I think it mm-hmm. is so interesting to think about how I, a lot of us in OT and in rehab and SLP and PT, I think a lot of people are getting tired of the medical model and like looking outside for different options. Um, 
and finding it perhaps in implementation science. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I can't, uh, you know, I call myself an honorary social worker. I can't practice social work, um, but did really um, gain a lot of different perspectives as to how to look at health problems, um, health issues uh, in in our society amongst older adults, as well as just as other groups as well. So um, it was a great, it, it, I, I love taking those questions as to why did you do this? Why did you do the social work thing, Lisa? But um, makes sense in my mind. And some other people, um, they get it, but I have no problem trying to, to justify it. Especially now with the implementation slant, I can say, well, this is where I learned about implementation science. And I do think it's, so it does, to me, it makes like total sense. I applied to PhDs in social work too, for basically mm. that same kind of reason, like thinking about like, how do we answer these big questions when we have like challenges with access and um, and the entire system? It's not just like, does my specific intervention that I like work in my lab, that that question doesn't matter to me as much as whether it can work at the system level. Right. And I am very thankful for like our, our colleagues who are, who do identify as being like pure interventionists, mm-hmm. even though I don't even know really what a pure interventionist is at this point. Um, Cause I do think people are getting better about thinking about just what you're talking about barriers to even accessing the intervention, sustainability issues. So, but we do need those people that are testing efficacy and effectiveness before, um, before we get into any talks about, you know, implementation based trials. But I would perhaps, I think that maybe the three of us would argue that, we should always be thinking about implementation, even in like intervention development phases. We should have implementation on the like in the back of our minds to make sure that what we're developing is actually something that can be used down the line. One of the things I'm thinking of is um, the you know that bridge, right? So the importance of kind of developing um, interventions and kind of understanding efficacy to your point, but like what are some of the challenges that researchers face? And thinking about that, right? Like, how do we how do we bridge the two so that we are both doing that and thinking about implementation um, of those kind of evidence based things in real world world settings? Right, right. And you know, it, that's an interesting question, Kelly. That I I probably have not spent as much time thinking about. Um, instead, you know, I've spent like the three of us have spent maybe more time thinking about barriers that providers or healthcare systems or organizations face when trying to implement evidence into the real world. But what you bring up is interesting. Like what, what about the barriers that researchers face trying to think about developing interventions that are um, down the line implementable in real world practice. And, and I think it is, um, it's a lot to juggle, right? I, I've started to dabble in a little bit of intervention development um, in the dementia care space. I have a grant for the impact collaboratory. That's about, intervention development right now. Um, and it's, I would say it's the hardest project I've been a part of because you really do have to, there is a science to intervention development. There's a science to implementation. So it's a lot to juggle, um, which is why, you know, you need a cadre of, of researchers who bring different levels of expertise to the table, but still need to know maybe a little bit about intervention development, if you're an implementation scientist, you need to know a little bit about implementation if you're an intervention um, interventionist. So I think that there's a, a lot of language that gets thrown around and there's like language barriers. When, when I say that, I mean, like, as we're talking about 
intervention development or implementation, sometimes we're talking about the same thing, but using different terms, and then we're missing the mark and people are confused. I think that's a barrier in implementation as well. It's just so, it's a rapidly evolving field. It's really hard to keep up with. Um, not just if you're an interventionist, I think it's hard to keep up with if you are somebody that does identify as being an implementation researcher too. It's just, it's, it's ever evolving. Um, so there's, there's that piece. And then um, I, I think it is just a different way of shifting your mind around um, taking something and testing its efficacy and then thinking about, okay, well, what strategies am I going to use to actually get this embedded into real world practice? So um, I don't, I'm sure we can think of others, but those are the, the top ones that, that come to mind. It's um, two very different fields that certainly should be, you know, there should be overlap, but it's a lot to juggle and stay on top of. Yeah, I think I was, as you're talking, I was thinking about kind of the, you know, growth of team science alongside this kind of growth of implementation science and that thinking about working with broader and more interdisciplinary teams. But the other thing I was thinking about um, is it, um, it almost is in some ways unnatural for us to think about like the kind of community and implementation piece first. Mm. Um, and so yeah. like the community engagement piece and, you know, um, we like to ask questions, but we like to ask our own questions. And sometimes yeah. those aren't the relevant questions. And so asking somebody else what we should, you know, asking communities and the, you know, the folks that are most impacted by our work, what we should be doing instead of um, kind of asking the questions we want to ask and, and going to tell communities what they should be doing. I feel like that it's, it's less, it's becoming less and less unnatural, but I just, I do feel like it's unnatural in science. It's not something that we're, you know, we like a top down approach. Um, right. I wonder, yeah. Do you feel like that's a bit of a challenge when we think about implementation? I, I love that point. And absolutely. I, and, you know, I've learned a lot and an investigator for, I don't know, like Catherine, I know you've been on some of their talks and Kelly, I'm sure you're, uh, familiar as well with the LEARN network. So the Learning Health Systems Rehabilitation Research Network um, led by Linda Resnick. Um, you know, they, part of what LEARN attempts to do is um, connect researchers to health systems so that those researchers can, and rehab researchers can work collaboratively with different health systems to answer just what you said, Kelly, to answer questions that are most meaningful to the healthcare system, not necessarily the researcher going in there and saying, hey, I, I developed this assessment in stroke rehab and now I want you to use it because I think it's great. Um, like that doesn't get, doesn't get us too far, but if we maybe can, you know, swallow our pride in some cases. And, and, you know, I think that they're, yes, with saying that though, that also requires a little bit of a culture shift in, if you're thinking about those of us that work purely in academia and criteria for things like promotion and tenure and, you know, being an independent researcher. It's, I know things are changing in that space, but um, it, it is, it's a tricky balancing act of, you know, demonstrating you're an independent investigator that's answering, asking and answering good questions but at the same time, also being this really good team player where you're doing work that's meaningful to the different systems that we're trying to reach. So I think it's, and some cultures are changing, which is great. Um, but it hasn't always been that case, at least from my perspective. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that, too. It's nice to see some of the beginning starts of change. And I think conversations and some systems, I'm seeing it more and more that people are starting to put in the language and even emphasize like funding mechanisms that include different 
types of methodologies or uh, incorporate communities a little bit more. I was thinking as you were talking about, you, you mentioned a little bit ago, like the science of implementation and you were talking about the language and how some of it varies so much even amongst implementation scientists at times. And I was just wondering if you could provide kind of a, what you wish you would have known 10 years ago, perhaps as an OT clinician, like what is implementation science and what might somebody, like what qu types of questions do implementation scientists ask? Sure. Um, you know, uh, I think that, and there was a great paper that came out maybe two years or so ago, maybe even just last year. Um, I think when Abedis led it, I think Carol Lewis was a co-author on it. So some of the, you know, what we, what I would consider to be the leaders in the implementation field, particularly in the health, mental and behavioral health space, health, mental health and behavioral health space in implementation. Um, and it, they talked about how, because implementation science is this newer but growing field, ever evolving field, there was over the course of the past decade, you know, an effort to um, give implementation science some more legitimacy. And so the, the leaders, the pioneers were, you know, showing like, hey, this is a real science. We can do these, you know, build these complex models and we can ask these really elaborate questions and we can do a, you know, we can do these cluster RCTs and we can do these fancy study designs. And, and yes, that can be done, has been done. There's a lot of brilliant minds out there doing that work, but then it becomes, you know, we run the risk of, and we have already started developing what some people call this secondary implementation gap, where the primary implementation gap is that 17 year research to practice gap that a lot of people are familiar with, right? It takes 17 years to take empirical research findings and to then translate those into real world practice. Um, but And that's much to do with the fact that what's happening in the research world isn't really relevant and it's not reaching the actual practice world. But now with the secondary gap, you've got implementation scientists that are test developing and testing these, um, you know, in some cases, complex implementation strategies, but then those strategies don't trickle down to the frontline providers and systems who are actually expected to maybe use those strategies to help move evidence into practice. So it's a, a long-winded way of me saying that I wish I would have um, maybe appreciated the value of simplicity in, in some things when it comes to implementation and that just because something looks really like glamorous and complex doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work better than something that is simple, more relatable and more straightforward. Um, and I wish I could cite an example of like maybe a great research study that has done that. Um, but what's the, what's that acronym? Like keep it simple, stupid, the KISS acronym. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that because um, if something's really, really complex, it's just, you know, it's it's probably more likely to fail, I would say. Whether it's an intervention, whether it's an implementation strategy, got to keep it simple, um, particularly in healthcare settings where practitioners, um, if, if we're looking at them as our, our target audience, they've got a lot going on. So if we're going to add one more thing for them to, to do, try to keep it as straightforward as possible. I think that's a really good take-home message. Like, I don't know that I realized as a learner, you know, when I look back 10, 15, 20 years ago when I was thinking about becoming an OT or I was an early career OT, you know, it didn't seem like a big deal to why not just add on this one more measure or why not just do this one thing. But then when you're in clinical practice, you realize how difficult it really is and maybe how little investment from your employer or from your supervisor there is for you to do those other things, or it might not even be possible at all. Um, 
that I think keeping it simple while also recognizing the context, like, so you, is this, is this even a viable intervention to do in this place at this time with these people? Right. It might not be. Right. It's just, yeah. And I wish that, again, I, I wish I had a good example off the top of my head as to what constitutes like a really, um, and I shouldn't say simple, but um, perhaps something that has fewer steps, perhaps something that is more relatable um, to, to providers that then ultimately leads to improvements in either practice behaviors or then leads to improvements in, in patient outcomes. Um, I think there was a pragmatic trial that was done and pragmatic trials, implementation studies. I feel like there's some nice overlap there. There was a, a pragmatic trial. I'm going to, um, I'll consider the name of it, but it, I think it was about, um, it might've been about either hand-washing or some sort of like antiseptic use. And the intervention itself was, you know, it didn't have all that many steps to improve patient care, but it was, you know, ultimately effective. And, and sometimes in pragmatic trials, because there are so many uncontrolled factors, um, um, pragmatic trials end up, you know, having null results. Uh, but this one kind of stands out and it might be just because of that, because the, the intervention itself wasn't, was a little bit more, uh, was easier to grasp for those who were implementing it. But yeah, I can send that uh, reference along. Sure. Yeah, we'll include it in the resources. I think like one thing that was appealing to me when I first learned about implementation science was that the questions were about, you know, testing different strategies and how do we get more people to be interested in an intervention or to use an intervention. And it meant thinking about about what we do in a really complex way. Like for me, I, I like to think about like Braffenbrenner's ecological model a lot. And like, we need to think about the individual, but we also mm-hmm. need to think about the healthcare system and the policies. And so many of the implementation models really encourage us to think like that, um, in my perspective anyways. Yeah. I don't know, like, do you, you've been involved in a lot of implementation studies and looking at a lot of strategies and a lot of scoping reviews. You have so many scoping reviews, Lisa. <laughs> Oh, I know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I've enjoyed them, but some of them, it's, um, you know, you, yeah, they're a lot of work. For those of you embarking upon scoping reviews, they are a lot of work. Important yeah, work, but always yeah. so much work. Oh, what yeah, have you learned yeah. from all of those reviews? Uh, besides the fact that they are a lot of work, um, <laughs> I, have, I have learned that, um, uh, that I never want to forget the importance of doing, um, you know, free implementation work. So just because there's a shiny new intervention that might, you know, yield some really nice results in at the efficacy trials that it's been, you know, found to be, you know, deemed efficacious, just because there's a shiny new penny out there on the street doesn't mean that we should like automatically jump into testing implementation strategies to move it into real world practice. Rather, that we need to do our due diligence and take the time to first understand, okay, well, what are the the quality gaps? So do we even understand what is being implemented at this one site or this one setting? Um, and then based on, after we know what is actually being done as part of real world practice, then we can start to think about, okay, if we are going to move, if the shiny penny is still appropriate to be in this setting, what are the barriers and facilitators to moving it into real world practice? And then based on those barriers and facilitators, think through in implementation strategies that can help overcome barriers and leverage facilitators. Um, but then also with the, the field uh, of implementation, I, I think we also need to, to like, well, I'm not saying this, the field of implementation science is saying this, but as rehab researchers, 
who are doing implementation work, I think that we also need to keep up with the field of implementation and take the time to think through what hypothesized mechanisms are going to change as a result of us deploying implementation strategies. So it's not like, for instance, um, if you've got, if you appoint a clinical practice champion, that's going to be the one that says, you know, I really believe in this shiny new penny. And I think that we as a organization, as a team, as a system should use it with all of our patients who present with X, Y, and Z symptoms that, that champion, um, you know, if we use the shiny new penny in clinical practice, it's not because the champion led to improvements in practice, like something changed in the middle. Um, like arguably that change was like, okay, this champion led to the entire organization having an increased sense of buy-in in this shiny new penny. And then that led to improvements in, in adoption or uptake of the intervention of the shiny new penny. So that, that those whole like hypothesized mechanisms, they should be driven by like, you know, select, like we should identify them based on yes, empirical work, but also like theory. So um, that's a growing area, but I, an area I find to be very fascinating. Um, and I don't know if you if you all have read any of Kara Lewis's work, but her team out West um, has an R01 about kind of building this database of implementation mechanisms so that we have a place to start when it comes to the language around mechanisms and what, what we think is changing as a result of these implementation strategies being used. I'm thinking, I, I just listening to that, I think like there's this fundamental kind of like baseline message of we need to understand like A, what's been done and what, you know, like I think that we think so much about um, expediting work and moving quickly yeah. and what's the timeline to your earlier point, right? That, um, and, and Catherine was mentioning the scoping reviews, but I, you know, just that the time it takes to kind of just sit in it and like, understand the the context and the bigger picture and that those connections like like really thinking through it is such an important point um that you're making is you know just spending like giving dedicating the right amount of time to really fully immersing ourselves and what's been done what worked and didn't work yeah. in the literature and and thinking through then like the why we make some of the decisions we make yeah uh, yeah um and I think that we can learn, there's been tons, and I'm guilty of doing this myself, which is why I love your, Kelly and Catherine, I love your your uh, scoping review so much on implementation strategies and pediatric rehab, um, but there's been so much work done on barriers and facilitators to implementation. Um, and I think that at this point, we can go to the literature for those barriers and facilitators if we're wanting to start a new implementation project, go to literature, see what's been done, pull out those implement um, those barriers and facilitators, maybe vet them and make sure that those barriers and facilitators are the ones that are really most um, relevant to whatever setting we're, we're looking to go into. But I don't, I don't know how much, you know, we've got, we know a lot more now than we did, you know, 10 or so years ago, five years ago about barriers and, and facilitators that I think we can start um, leveraging existing literature as opposed to spending a lot of time in, um, you know, grants and other projects, you know, figuring out what those barriers and facilitators are. We've got, a, we've got a little bit more of a leg up. Yeah. It's still necessary to identify at the get-go, but we at least aren't starting from total scratch, I don't think. I like that kind of mindset of thinking about, like, we don't necessarily need to start from total scratch with every question. 
we definitely need to understand the context in our local places and populations and everything like that, but we don't need to start from scratch. And I think many young scientists maybe aren't aware or like look within their field and, and don't see what has already been done necessarily. Just making a comment about that. Sure. Um, well, and particularly if they're, if they're, um, you know, early career OT scientists or rehab scientists where that um, intersection of implementation rehab and uh, or implementation science and rehab is that intersection is a little less represented out there in the field. Um, and so then you can like think, well, you know, no one's written a scoping review about barriers and facilitators to implementing um, like the bioness in particular in, in like upper extremity stroke rehab, but you can still pull from other reviews that are done in other disciplines and other fields, looking at just, you know, technology use with the stroke population or even with, you know, re neuro rehab populations. So um, it's, it's, I guess, shifting that thinking to, um, even though your exact research question maybe hasn't been addressed in the literature, when it comes to those barriers and facilitators, you can still kind of extrapolate from other similar studies and, and probably come across very uh, similar findings as, as well, hopefully. But then vet those barriers and facilitators with your actual, you know, the setting that you're trying to, to reach just to, to double check and make sure that you're on point. That seems like a good approach. Um, I was wondering just, you know, as we've been thinking about implementation science and also that it hasn't necessarily been as represented in the rehabilitation fields, OTPT speech, um, as hopefully it will be in the future. Uh, do you have any advice for people in rehabilitation that are considering a PhD and maybe interested in incorporating uh, implementation science? So these are, that would be interested in pursuing a PhD, yeah. Um, I think Question that- Question five on the agenda, if that helps. Oh, hey, great, yes. Or can um, I add like the, you know, folks who in their clinical space are identifying this problem, but not naming it? Mm, yes, Yeah, right? good point, Kelly. Yeah. Um, so there are, um, there's a, a newer term and um, I'm blanking on the name of the uh, implementation researcher that really kind of gets credit for, for this term. Um, I know much of the work's been done of UNC Chapel Hill, uh, but it's the implementation support practitioner. So um, I would kind of look into, I think if we can Google that right now, I'd probably be able to, to find the name of, of somebody that will, will stand out. Um, but it's, you know, so many people, to your point, Kelly, are doing implementation work in real world practice, but aren't calling it implementation science, aren't calling it implementation practice, don't view themselves as implementation support practitioners. Allison Metz, there you go, as well as Bianca Albers, yes. Um, um, but folks are doing this work and we have a lot to learn from them. Like, I know we like to think that, you know, because we're here at academia talking about implementation science, that, you know, we are, we're the ones writing the playbook, but, but really the, the frontline folks that are doing the work day in, day out and are inadvertently doing implementation, um, quote unquote, science work, um, we, sh we can and should learn from them. So um, I think that folks that are currently maybe in practice that want to disseminate their work or want to pursue a PhD, um, I would you know, try to write up some of that work that's being done. And even if that means disseminating it in some of the more practice-based editor-reviewed journals, you know, OT has OT practice, of course, or the SIS um, quarterly uh, 
editions that, that come out. I think I'm butchering that term, but um, there are different innovative ways to capture what you're doing in practice, disseminate it to your, your peers in ways that aren't just the, the traditional peer-reviewed journal process that, as we know, can take months and months. If not longer. If not longer, right. <laughs> So um, last question, I think, where do you, we've, and we've touched on this, I feel like a little bit, but um, where do you see the future of implementation science going? What are the, you know, trends we should be thinking about um, and aware of? Yeah. Um, so I, I do think, you know, I should have said this much earlier, but I do think that the implementation science field can really um, move the needle, not to use a cliche here, but really move the needle when we're thinking about providing more equitable care to patient populations. And, you know, there is, there are um, like equity focused implementation research logic models out there. There are frameworks, Eva Woodward's framework, um, the health equity implementation framework um, can help guide research questions, can help guide our identification of those barriers and facilitators that we were talking about earlier that are so important for our selection and implementation strategies. Um, but you know, just like all interventions are not you know, necessarily appropriate for all populations, all implementation strategies are not appropriate for all settings, all providers, all learners. So as we think about equity in healthcare for the care that's being provided directly to, to patients, I think we also need to the implementation is moving in the space of also uh, tailoring implementation strategies that are more equitable to target audiences too. Um, and uh, and I think that that is in some cases just as important as developing interventions that are um, more equitable for marginalized minoritized populations that we serve. Um, so that's one, one way. The other ways as we talked about implementation mechanisms and really digging into if we're looking at strategies what is actually changing that's leading to improvements um, or in some cases declines in implementation outcomes right it's like that black box behind the uh, behind the implementation strategy it's not the dynamic educational session that leads to practitioners uptake of an intervention Arguably, we think that the educational session leads to like changes in knowledge acquisition or skill, and that is what ultimately leads to uptake being being improved. So, um, I think those those two areas, equitable implementation as well as uh, implementation mechanisms, is where um, not just implementation science is moving in that direction, trying to make big changes there, but also where we as rehab researchers who love implementation can also kind of make our mark and contribute to the broader field of implementation growing as well. Yeah, I love that. It made me think about sustainability, right? Like we think about the like, hey, this worked because of this champion. Sure. But this will last, mm, not because yeah. of the champion, but because of the actual what you're talking about, right? The underlying um thing that changed. So yeah, I love that. Yeah, no, that's a good point about sustainability. And I admittedly projects that I've been a part of, um, we haven't yet got there. Right? We're still trying to like figure out what is even going to make small changes changes in implementation um, and would love to then down the line be part of work that looks at not only what helps make small changes in implementation, but also what then makes those changes last. Especially when context is always, it's dynamic, it's always changing, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
in my mind, it's policy and money. Mm, I mean, when we look at bear, like top bearers, typically it's it's time and it's money, and that's why things don't get don't get done, don't get implemented, can't can't get implemented. I should say, um, the policy. You're right. Is another space that I think that I would like to learn a lot more about because that's where we do see kind of changes that have huge implications as they trickle down. To, to Maybe I'm practice. just jaded. No, I think you're so right. <laughs> I think you're so right. I'll say you're you're educated. You're aware. You're realistic. Jaded and jaded. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. A little edge yeah. never hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that you'd like us to include or that you think people that are pursuing research degrees should know about? Other resources or tips or is it a good I field? Would you recommend it? 100%. Absolutely. Um, we have, yeah. It, I would love for implementation researchers to be on every single grant that's out there. Um, and if you are somebody who like still doesn't even have a good grasp as to what, how to define implementation science, I do think that the National Cancer Institute does a really nice job with those modules that I sent your way, Catherine, um, uh, going through, you know, basic intro to implementation science, as well as some of the, you know, kind of pillars of what the field is made up of. So frameworks, theories, models, study designs, um, stakeholder involvement. I can't remember what the titles of some of those other modules, but it's a nice place to start. They're free. I think there's eight or nine of those modules. Um, I, they, they vary in length, but maybe an hour each. So I would check it out. Cool. We'll have that in our resources linked on the website. Cool. Love this topic. And I always love talking about it. So appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Thank you. That's that. Thank you for joining us today. Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist. And more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at demystifyingresearch at wustl.edu.